Your idea of turn that shit up in mine differ quite a lot. <laughs> hurrah, hurrah, once again, uh, the Greg Proops Film Club convenes here in uh, Hollywood's most uh, salubrious uh, film palace, the uh, Monument to Celluloid, the Los Feliz Three here, this American Cinematheque, ladies and gentlemen. This is where you applaud, hooray. Uh, tonight we're showing the 1935 classic by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, rewritten by him and Charles Bennett, called The 39 Steps, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we're very excited to show it once again. Uh, oh, look, they've got a little American Cinematheque mic stand thingy here. That's fantastic. Ten years into this, and we're fucking on it. Um, we're showing this Hitchcock picture. I think it's only the third, maybe fourth Hitchcock picture we've shown here at the Greg Proofs Film Club. As you know, my wife Jennifer is uh, the curator of the film club because my taste in films uh, sometimes fails me. And uh, I've picked uh, such classics as um, Return of the Living Dead 2. And uh, okay, there's some men here. And, <laughs> and Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension. Um, uh, as you can see, there was a groundswell of support for those movies, but um, we're, we've, there's, I could go into the theory of why we pick uh, the movies that we do here at the film club. And, and by the way, this is also a podcast. And my understanding is um, that this is also a podcast. This glass is in some fucking shocking shape, you guys. I don't know if anyone can see. Uh, I, I'm going to drink out of the bottle. Uh... Uh, the, the rationale that we uh, have here at the film club, there's only two uh, uh, criterion for pictures here. And uh, one, is it awesome? And two, is it under two hours? And uh, yeah, thank you. That's why we've never shown Lawrence of Arabia or anything by Tarkovsky. Not that they're not worthy of being shown. It's just that uh, when you're going to blather for 20 minutes before a movie, it really behooves you to show a picture that everyone can stay awake through the whole thing and not have everything below your equator freeze over. Uh, into some sort of numbness, which is what happens. Uh, so uh, this picture is a brisk one hour and 25 minutes. And by the way, I actually found out where you can watch it for free for those of us listening uh, on the podcast at openculture.com has an absolutely free version of the 39 steps that you can watch if you wish to watch it right after uh, this fantastic podcast. This is part of, a, I believe, a podcast festival they're having here at the American Cinematheque where... Uh, um, Everybody's doing their little podcast from here. And, uh, you know, I started podcasting um, in the 30s when Marconi first invented the pod. And uh, they'd laid an Atlantic cable uh, that connected the honky motherland to our country. Uh, uh, as my friend Sean Murphy once said, the land bridge that connects Scotland to Kentucky. And um, that was when we first started podcasting. And then I, I, uh, I was there through the hip years of podcasting, the, the uh, mid-teens, and now we're, of course, in the, in the waning, dissipating years of podcasting, uh, where I was watching, what's that show? It's, this, it's the sequel to um, uh, Sex in the City uh, uh, with uh, Sarah Jessica, um, and Just Like That, uh, I think it's called. I don't know if anyone uh, has time on their hands um, the way I evidently do, but I was watching an episode the other night. And on the show, and just like that, she has a podcast based on her life as an expert on sex in the city. And it takes place in this awesome radio studio and is pretty much exactly like a radio show. 
um, thank you. And then at the end of one of the episodes, they're like, oh my God, we don't have any more sponsors. And where are we going to take our podcast? And it's like, I don't know about you, but I've been making mine on my own for a real fucking long time. I don't remember going into a studio at any point or having any sponsors, quite frankly. Um, if you're not going to do it for the goddamn love of podcasting, then there's no reason to be a podcaster unless you're, you know, Joe Rogan or whatever, and then you're just going to promote white supremacy and fucking anti-science the rest of your life. So, and the crowd went quiet. I'm sorry, I didn't realize we had the big fucking Rogan crowd in from Simi Valley here tonight. Otherwise, I wouldn't have dared breach that fucking wall of satire. Listen, you go home and do what you want. And believe me, everything on Facebook is for real. For real. Uh, there's one thing about all the tech uh, titans, uh, Zaki and, and, uh, and, and Tile and, uh, and Muskie and, um, and Bezo, and, and that's that their commitment to the truth is what really guides them. Um, so you can be sure, uh, because we're in a very precarious time, as you know, there's a, what do they call it, disinformation? There was a better word in the old days, as in Hitchcock's day, propaganda. Uh, was the word they used, which means lies made up for your amusement. Say, for instance, you were a white person and you were really, really upset that you were ugly and unhappy and that you didn't want to work at all, but you still wanted the advantages that thousands of years of institutional racism have given you, and you felt that being broached by the fact that there was a black woman in, who got something somewhere on Earth. Um, then the propaganda is exactly the kind of thing that makes you feel warm and happy inside again and, and maybe go buy a... a, a um, a big jug of Mountain Dew and really settle down for a long evening of Rogan, which I think a lot of this crowd evidently is going to do after I get through with you here. I'm from San Francisco, so I don't give a fuck. I'm liberal as shit. Um, I love uh, uh, trans people and gay people and black people. I really, really don't fucking care what your opinion is. I'm so fucking sick of having to hair, care uh, what other people's I, I'm, I'm respectful that you may have an opinion. However, when people say things, well, I don't care what they do as long as, okay, yeah. Uh, you've just checked out on me. Um, if I wanted to hear unbased, uh, 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 completely biased opinions based on no facts whatsoever, I could visit my relatives anytime I like. <laughs> and I could hear uh, how uh, um, Mexican people are evidently flooding in to take the jobs that they so wanted. Uh, thank you. Uh, or I could go uh, visit my relatives in Oklahoma or whatever and just uh, die. <laughs> die of being in Oklahoma. And by the way, I'm a big red state person. I, I like the red states. Uh, I, I think they're fun. I, I particularly like the South. Um, um, my family's from Mississippi. Really, Greg? I didn't go to school in Mississippi. Um, well, nobody goes to school in Mississippi. The point is... Uh, the food is good, and if you're white, the people are friendly, and it's, so, it's a really fun place to go. There's lots of history and art and, and culture and music and whatnot. Um, I think you'll find the South invented writing in the United States, unless you're some big Boston-centric douchebag, fucking Yale asshole, Harvard fucking head of the writer's room piece of shit. That's my problem with the strike. Okay, so... First of all, uh, uh, the last podcast we did here, uh, the last proofcast, the last film club was uh, in June. And the strike had just begun, the WGA strike. And now here we are at the end of bloody August, heading into the autumn, and the strike is still raging on, of course. Because uh, uh, the producers don't see it as a strike. They see this as like um, 
when someone hits your Beamer in the Bristol Farms car park, thank you, and scratches it slightly, and you have to go down to the dealership and talk to another person that you don't know, that doesn't go to the, that doesn't have kids in the same school you do, that kind of feeling of disgust is what the producers have for everyone who's ever had a creative impulse in their life. So I'm telling you, because I've met some of them, thank you. The people who run show business detest show business. Really, they should have run like prison camps or whatever. They should have been in the prison system, which is also one of the most overfunded things in the United States. Uh, the Defense Department, the prison system, uh, the Police Department of Los Angeles. The, like, for instance, the head of Paramount could have been the chief of the LAPD. They would have had the same budget, a couple, four or five billion dollars. They would have had the same edict, go out and make people fucking unhappy, right? <laughs> take the poor and destroy their lives and then support the dominant paradigm. There, how is the edict different is what I'm asking you. But there's a certain craft and art that we possess. The performers and writers who make uh, 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 the, the pictures and the televisions and the uh, um, uh, podcasts and books and whatnot, um, a lot of us started because we wanted to express ourselves and maybe entertain people along the way. The, have people laugh in a darkened room, strangers that I don't know, validating my existence every 15 to 30 seconds. That's why we're doing it. Um, people who make money off it, who are at the high, high end, who are making hundreds of millions of dollars and don't want one cent, one piaster, one iota, one shekel of that money taken away from them because they've got to answer to their fucking stockholders in other countries, in China and Japan and wherever. Um, they don't have that impulse. They didn't get into show business because they're like, fuck, I went to the movies and I was swept away. I saw Robert Donut and Madeline Carroll handcuffed together in Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, and he had to move his arms so that she could pull her stockings off, and that was the moment when I was both aroused and completely enraptured by what fiction can do, by what taking cheap pot-boiling fiction, which is what Hitchcock does, and turn it into an inconceivable, sexy, sophisticated trip to another world that allows you to leave this world for an hour and 25 minutes and live in another world where there's answers and where there's danger and where there's the potential of sex, because it's Hitchcock, where there's the potential of sex. Um, they don't think that. People who run the studios never had that moment. Their moment was they, they, uh, 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 they saw a poor person on the street once and they went, <laughs> yeah, I'll never be like that again. No, the only scene that ever made any sense to them in a movie is when Vivian Lee holds up the radish in fucking Gone with the Wind and goes, as God is my witness, I'll never ever give in to the writers or actors again. That's how they heard the line. That's not the actual line. So here we are, two months into this fucking thing. So I went and I walked the strike. We, uh, we, uh, we left the country for a while, not a, because for any legal reason. I killed a guy, but um, <laughs> he's not completely dead, whatever, define kill. So, uh, but before we did, I went over to, uh, uh, to walk the picket line, right? Because I belong to several unions, 
Uh, I belong to uh, the Screen Actors Guild. We're a guild, by the way. So if you ever walk by us while we're doing our craft, you'll see us hammering away. Well, there's assist, yeah, assistants sitting around. My, the guild I attended was like a, a Tintoretto. There was people painting, people putting gesso on canvases, stretcher bars and whatnot. That was the kind of guild I grew up in. Uh, and then I also belong in the American Federation of Television and Radio Actors. Um, I'm not certain where I fall on the TV radio scale, um, because a podcast is sort of, uh, as we used to call them, radio for nobody. Mm. And of course, I also belong to the Union of the Snake that Duran Duran started some time ago in the 80s. And my understanding is that it's on the rise. I don't know the lyrics. No, he doesn't either. I don't know if you've ever listened to Duran's song. Duran, Duran. I left one Duran off just then. I said a Duran song, but of course I meant both of them. Simon doesn't know the words either, which is why he just howls a lot. Um, so I went to do my union duty, because I believe in the unions, right? As Jimmy Hoffa said before they buried him under a porch, in unions there is strength. And thank you, I'll be doing Jimmy Hoffa jokes all night. <laughs> and it was a movie, Jack Nicholson, with a funny nose on. Jack Nicholson's nose in Hoffa, second only to uh, uh, Nicole Kidman's uh, nose in the movie where she played Virginia Woolf. Was it her or was it Kate Blanchett? Who was it? Whoa, we've broken out into fucking discussion groups. And as I recall, you were told not to speak at all. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's koala bear nose that she wore to play Virginia Woolf was awesome. And then the nose that uh, uh, Jack Nicholson wore in the Jimmy Hoffman movie were, I think, taken from the same nose bank where uh, Bradley Cooper got his Bernstein nose from. And Steve Martin got his Cyrano nose for the, the remake of Cyrano. Um, my nose is pretty honking, and I don't have to fucking buy a fake one to play Virginia Woolf. When I, when I do the hours, you'll cry. <laughs> so I go to do my, uh, my union duty, as one does. I go to the, uh, I got there probably 10-ish. And uh, um, by the way, we don't start early. This is, the best part about the striking actors is there's no fucking six o'clock call or any of that shit. Fuck, fuck first call. We're there for like the third call or whatever. Can you move me down to 10? Because I got a thing. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, it was like 10-ish. And uh, I went over to the table to sign in and whatnot. And the woman goes, I'm sorry, there's no more T-shirts. You're going to have to get her earlier. I'm like, I didn't come for like a supermarket prize thing or whatever. I came to strike against the evil empire. So they give me my sign. And we all walking around with our signs and shit. And the problem with um, being in show business and uh, being a performer is um, there's nothing more annoying than other performers. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of performers in your life, but we're fucking horrible. I imagine being trapped on like a Spanish galleon with cats across the Pacific and then having to listen to the cats the whole fucking time. There's no more milk. What about me? What about me? And then they lay on their back for a while and they go like this or whatever. And then they take a shit in the corner and then they're all fussy and then they attack your feet. That's what actors are like. <clears throat> they're horrible. 
Um, some of them really talented. Um, people were auditioning in line. You know, we're trying to do a picket here. People are fucking doing monologues and shit. There's a, uh, they, they gave out prizes at one point. There was like a big, okay, let's hear it for so-and-so who organized the whistles and shit. I'm like, you realize that we're losing focus here. Like behind the wall of the studio, there's a bunch of evil people who are driving in and out freely in front of us who couldn't give a shit whether... <laughs> whether you wore your special visor today. Uh, so that was my problem. Once I was out there with my brothers and sisters on the picket line, I lost all support for my own union. <laughs> and I thought, maybe the producers have a point. Maybe AI could replace all of us, and then they wouldn't have to have any more meetings or whatever. I'm joking, of course. Uh, uh, I still think they're... Um, I think we're going to... Uh, I'm not going to predict what's going to happen, but I will say this. Um, everything that's happened in my lifetime, um, talkies, the airplane, uh, the wireless, the telegraph, the trains, everybody said it was the end of mankind over every single one of them, and then we all survived, right? When I was a little kid, it was a big deal to get cable. To, first of all, I'm so old that I remember inviting people over to our house to watch Peter Pan and the Wizard of Oz because we had a color television set. Now, that, a lot of you are like, what the fuck? Um, the, let me explain to you how television sets worked in those days. They were they operated on steam, and you poured water into the top. <laughs> and then came uh, the cable. Uh, then we got cable TV, and then there was the Betamax era, where finally people could record shit, which would have been a miracle when I was little. If we'd had phones and we could have called up shit on YouTube and watched the same movie 10,000 times, we already drove our parents crazy by playing like the Jungle Book soundtrack over and over in our room a billion times. The idea that you would have been able to watch movies over and over and over again, so exciting. Um, but that was going to be the end of everything. Cable TV was going to be the end of everything. Um, uh, uh, beta, uh, being able to tape at home was going to be the end of everything. The movie companies flipped the fuck out when they had to start putting uh, cassettes of movies out. And then the video stores, and now, is there a video store left? I think there's a couple like, that are there, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of like, historical interest. Uh, I mean, I'm not knocking them. I still love it, too, and I would go to them, and I support vinyl, for goodness sakes. Of course I have a stereo that Jennifer will not let me touch or look at, because I'll fucking break it, won't I? Um, but AI is going to happen whether we want it to or not. Whether it takes over the universe or not, I think, is uh, debatable, or uh, if you're an enormous group, it's mass debatable. And I think that... There, elements of are going to creep in no matter what we do. We can strike all we like. They're going to find a way to do it. Because anything that cuts corners and cuts people out is how show business is going to operate. Show business isn't this big welcoming party where they're like, my God, you've got so many awesome and creative ideas. And even though you're not as attractive as other people, your intellect and your verve have uh, rocketed you to my office. So I'd like to indulge all of your whims and see what I can get out of you. It doesn't really happen that way. Uh, and so I think that We'll have some AI, and we'll never, ever, ever have to let go of the written word and what people do. People still read books, for goodness sakes. Look what I've got here. This is paper, and, and this is a pen, and this is a wristwatch. Yeah, I'm fucking old-fashioned, man. Uh, so uh, 
Let's talk about heroism for a second, because there's been a lot of it, and um, not by the studio heads, of course, but by a lot of people who've made a lot of sacrifices. All the writers that have had to write and watch their writing room get whittled down to nothing. All the people who are on television shows who literally can't make a living because even though they're on a television show on a regular basis, because they don't get paid enough. Meanwhile, we have to see Bob Iger and, and all the rest get up on TV and on the interweb and go, well, I'm very disappointed that they rejected our last offer. I'm disappointed that you're breathing and don't have flippers. <laughs> so we all have our own disappointments to harbor. Uh, I'm disappointed that you're not somewhere far, far away where you can't do harm to humanity anymore. But there we are. Um, and by the way, if you're here tonight, Mr. Iger, I, I'd love to work for you. <laughs> what did Bill Hicks call it? Sucking Satan's Packer. Um, there's been a lot of heroes uh, who've had to go through quite a lot. And I think the country is changing for the better all the time. Um, you mustn't get too caught up in um, the news because the news is run by the same people who run show business. There is no difference between the news and show business. They will tell you anything to agitate you and make you feel shitty about your life. Things aren't going that badly. If you have a black vice president that's a woman and a black woman on the Supreme Court, in the face of everything that's happened in the last five years, you have to call that a fucking win, you guys. And I know there's some of you out there who are like, Bernie, yeah, okay, you, one day you'll let that go. Um, <laughs> and realize that he is the old, ugly, icky guy that's holding you down. Um, I thought you were, Greg. I'm aspiring to. Um, what I'm getting at is this, um, this picture, Hitchcock made a lot of movies before and during World War II, and all of them are anti-Nazi movies. At no point did Hitchcock go, gee, I think it'd be great if England would reject the rest of Europe and have Brexit. Um, that was not on his mind. Now, I lived in England for uh, about five years in the 90s, and um, that was during the boom time. That was when they had blur and, uh, yeah, yeah, literally blur was one of the big high points of England in the 90s. And uh, the country was on fire, the people wanted to go there, there was lots of music and actors and artists and pictures and, and rock and roll and whatnot. And um, then they decided to cut themselves off from Europe, which was the thing that the Nazis wanted to do and the thing that the Russians want to do now. So it, it seems a little counterintuitive to take yourself out of the giant continent that's next to you um, but not if you're a white supremacist. Then nothing is counterintuitive because you have no intuition to guide you. So the idea that you would counter your own intuition is completely out of hand because you, you, there's nothing guiding you to begin with other than white supremacy. So where are you going with this? Hitchcock um, knew that fascism was rising in Europe. Not particularly uh, in light of this picture, but when you watch it, you'll see that there's a great deal of um, huffing and puffing about spies and secrets and murder and duplicity and whatnot, which I think you'll find has never really left us, and which is why uh, his movies remain cogent. That and the fact that, and I'll put this up against anybody, I really need to start this show. <laughs> um, my assertion is, in some ways, Hitchcock is the greatest director of all time. Why do you think that? He's certainly not the most feminist director of all time, and he's not the most racially aware director of all time, none of those things. What I'm talking about is, um, from a pure cinematic point of view, 
Um, everyone has a Hitchcock movie that they like, if they like film at all. And then there's one uh, awful Hitchcock movie that you like as well. Like for instance, for me, it's The Birds. <laughs> I watched it when I was little when my mom was away and I was home alone. And I'm like, I can handle this. Then the next morning I got up and there was a fucking bird outside. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen the movie The Birds, but the plot is a rich lady goes to Marin. That's the plot of the movie. A rich lady goes from San Francisco to Marin, gets in a rowboat, and then all hell fucking breaks loose. And she's wearing like a little skirt, uh, coat outfit, and has a purse, and has this awesome cigarette case. And when the birds attack her because she's rich, she goes, no, no, no. And you're like, are you and Suzanne Pochette gonna do it or what? Because she's like, well, I'm a school teacher here. You can stay the night if you like. And you're like, this movie's getting fucking hot. Um, and then there's the great ones. North by Northwest, The Lady Vanishes, Lifeboat. We've showed The Lady Vanishes and Lifeboat. Um, and Lifeboat, um, every day, they shot it over in um, Culver City. Uh, 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 Tallulah Bankhead would climb a ladder to go in the giant tank where the lifeboat was, and she didn't wear underwear, and the crew watched her climb up the ladder every day and gave her a round of applause every morning. And she also hated Walter Slezak, who played the Nazi in the movie, and called him a fucking Nazi. By the way, they were in a boat every day. There was no other set in Lifeboat. They were in a boat every day for fucking weeks and weeks and weeks in a pool, and she fucking ranked on him for being a Nazi, which he wasn't. He was an actor playing a Nazi. That I love. Um, uh, Saboteur, which uh, has the awesome line from Robert Cummings, what do I know? I'm from Glendale. <laughs> if you don't think Hitchcock had a sense of humor. Uh, Rebecca, where I don't think there is a Rebecca. Isn't she dead through the whole fucking thing? Foreign correspondent, he asked Gary Cooper to do it. He didn't do it. He got Joel McRae, and then Gary Cooper afterward went, I should have done it. It's a great movie anyway. Psycho, which I watched the other night, still as funny as the first time you saw it. Let's, we're not going to get into his perversion. What I'm talking about is uh, Vertigo, Rear Window, Notorious, Strangers on a Train, Shadow of a Doubt, Dial in for Murder to Catch a Thief, Suspicion, Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Spielberg doesn't have that many good movies. There, I've said it. I, I, Fellini doesn't have that many good movies. Hitchcock has more fucking good movies that you can watch and be entertained by than any director. There, I've said it. I've, there's the Greg Proops Film Club. I'll die on that fucking mountain. Um, if you can think of another one, you're willing to come at me. Uh, uh, are, is he the greatest filmmaker of all time? No. He made more entertaining movies. Spielberg made like one or two entertaining movies, and then there's the other ones. Like, I love the Abraham Lincoln movie. You've never watched it. That's what I mean about Spielberg. And then when he tries to do comedy, like what's the one where Leonardo wears an airline pilot outfit? I know the name of it. I was just throwing that out there. That's his idea of a comedy. His idea, the, Spielberg's genius for comedy boils down to one thing. He got Jeff Goldblum to be in Jurassic Park. That, he had enough of a sense of humor to go, that'll be good. And then, because if you've ever watched the whole movie, nothing, you know, there's a lot of monsters. And, and then there's a Jewish guy going, through the whole movie. And, and that's really what um, sets that dinosaur movie apart. <laughs> Madeline Carroll, who's the uh, 
blonde, the first cool blonde. The reason why people get so huffy-chuffy about this movie is um, this is the one where there's mistaken identity. The guy's taken on a trip. North by Northwest, he did a million movies that have this plot uh, later on. 20 years later, he did a bunch of them over again. Madeline Carroll is the cool blonde in this movie, which uh, predates uh, uh, Grace Kelly and, uh, and Kim Novak and, and Tippi Hedren, and, and, and I'm missing all the other ones. Uh, and Madeline Carroll, for real, was a hero. Her sister was killed in the Blitz in London in a bombing raid, and so she stopped acting and started working at field hospitals. She also was the head of the American, um, what was it here? Uh, Entertainment Director of the USO in 1942 and 1943, and a Red Cross worker. She gave up a house she had in France to orphans before the war got underway in America, before we joined the war. Um, Madeleine Carroll arranged for groups of young people in California to knit clothing for the orphans that lived in her chateau outside of Paris. Um, she was given the Legion of Honor, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower said that of all the movie stars he met during World War II, and he was leader of the Allied Forces, if you didn't remember Dwight Eisenhower, and by the way was a Republican, um, who said, beware of the military-industrial complex. Things have changed so much. Um, Dwight Eisenhower said that she was the most impressive actor he met during World War II. She was an absolute fucking staunch humanitarian who quit acting and started working um, for people during World War II. And you don't really see that uh, a lot, and I think it's an, a remarkable footnote to this movie. So now I give you, from 1935, and the reason why Hitchcock, um, I believe, aside from how sexy and sophisticated everything is, is so dynamic, is plot, 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 plot. Yeah, there's characters and shit in all of his movies, but what you're really gonna remember is that by the end of the 39 steps, I dare you to remember what the 39 fucking steps are. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you now, from 1935, Alfred Hitchcock's classic, with Robert Donut and Madeline Carroll, the 39 steps. <laughs> 